This is Trep Wire with a special guest podcast, the CRE Regulatory Roundup. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Joe McBride, head of CRE Finance, and joining us today from MBA, the Mortgage Bankers Association, is Mike Flood, Senior Vice President, Commercial Multifamily Policy and Member Engagement. Did I say it all right, Mike? You did, but just head of CRE is fine by me. All right, good. Actually, I wish you'd told me that before. It would have been so much easier. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, let's get let's jump right into it because we have a lot of topics that we want to talk about. And there's a number of regulatory areas your team is monitoring. But in the last week, we've seen a lot of back and forth with Democrats and Republicans over taxes, infrastructure, and the debt ceiling. Where are we today with that? Great question. Um, let's just break it into three parts. There is First was funding the government, right? That ran out on October 1st, but thankfully there was an agreement to extend that through December 3rd and, and sign into place. Why is that important? Well, in the commercial real estate world, if you are uh, wanting flood insurance or if you are a HUD lender, that means you can still lend. But to the points you were talking about, the two that are still left outstanding, the debt ceiling uh, and our ability to meet our, our obligations is supposed to run out uh, October 18th. Uh, according to Treasury Secretary Yellen. Uh, and at the same time, there's a bit of a fight going on about how we're going to pay for transportation and infrastructure, be it human transportation, as, as it's called, or, or human infrastructure, and how that can affect our beloved industry. So why don't we focus on those two? The debt ceiling. Here is the positive. There is a way that if the Democrats want to get the debt ceiling done on their own, because it doesn't seem like Republicans will help them, that they can do that. The process is unfortunately very difficult. It's called reconciliation, just like they're doing with transportation infrastructure. What happens is in layman's terms, it will allow the Senate to pass a debt ceiling extension simply along party line votes or 50-50. In a typical environment, what you would see is the need for 60 votes. The Senate has always been set up so you can filibuster and in order to overcome a filibuster, you need 60 votes to stop that. Since Republicans aren't going to help in a 50-50 Senate, it is highly likely, as of today, as I like to say, that the Democrats will have to use the reconciliation process. So what does that mean? House has a three-seat majority for Democrats. The Senate has a one-seat majority, even though it's 50-50 because of the vice president. So that, And when what we learned today is that in reconciliation, uh, they would not have to tie the debt ceiling to the tax bill they're trying to pass. They could actually pass them separately. So of all the things, we have never let the debt ceiling expire. Are we in a more politically risky environment than we have been in the past? Yes. However, again, the positive I stress is there is a way out that doesn't require Republican help, and that is not a judgment on anybody's politics, because the Republicans have simply said, you must do this on your own. So the House would have to pass a bill, then that goes over to the Senate, and it would go through reconciliation. It would be a messy process, but that can be done. And I think that can be done on time if need be. And of course, when, when, when the secretary says, uh, I think the debt ceiling will expire on October 15th, and we call it extraordinary measures, I'm sure if there are a couple days in there of extraordinarily extraordinary measures uh, in order to make this happen, it can. So if I was a betting man, I would say that it will be an ugly process. Uh, there will be reconciliation and it'll be long, uh, but we'll get this done. Hopefully it won't be a technical default in any way, uh, but that's likely the process going forward. Yeah, Mike, and you just, so that was great, by the way, because I'm no expert in this. You are, and I'm reading these articles kind of 
half-heartedly every day and not really totally following everything. But can you just explain how, if and how the Democrats are linking the to, was it the funding the government and the infrastructure bill or was it the debt ceiling and the like it was are they no longer linking that anymore the original idea in order to force republicans to do this was to link the debt ceiling to government funding right and the idea was nobody wants to be blamed for the government running out of money yeah. um, and mcconnell being mcconnell has said hey for three months i told you we're not helping. So go right ahead. Mr. Biden's numbers are down. Let's just find out. Uh, and, and the Democrats said, you know what, we believe you. Um, <laughs> and, and they found a good, to both parties credit, they found a good compromise on the budget. They put in some emergency funding for uh, states that have been affected by hurricanes, such as Louisiana. And they also put in some funding um, for, for programs that other members wanted to get the government funding through for at least two months. So that's kind of how that got broken apart. So now we go on to the debt ceiling and the, the Democrats had been worried um, that they wouldn't be able to do the debt ceiling under this arduous process called reconciliation unless they could also do the tax bill because they might have to do it all at one time. But of course, they were concerned because there's still inter-party squabbling on that, which I'll get into in a minute. But they found out today from uh, the Senate parliamentarian that they actually don't have to put them both together and vote at the same time. They can use the reconciliation process and have a separate vote on the debt ceiling. And that's why I'm a little more positive today than maybe I would have been 72 hours ago. It's still a messy process, but they don't have to have a resolution within their own party on taxes in order to move the debt ceiling bill. So that's why I think there's there's actually a way out of this. Got it. I, I was reading this article about, you know, the Yellen, Janet Yellen talking about how we're going to run out of money. And they mentioned the, the government looking under couch cushions. And I thought like, I can only imagine the type of couch cushions that the U.S. government has in their coffers. Well, apparently, according to Paul Krugman, it's it's one with a trillion dollar platinum coin underneath it um, <laughs> as, as the final fallback. That's right. Just print uh, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that would be great for inflation. Um, but it would be that would be some couch I'd like to see, because if that's the kind of ch change in the U.S. couch, then we ought to be able to get out of debt pretty quickly. <laughs> On this podcast, we've talked about some of the issues that are either part of the proposal for spending and some of the changes to it, like carried interest, 1031s. Give us an update on the impact to commercial real estate market specifically. And great. Thank you, Martha. And again, um, just to set the table again, the real issue here, and again, this is not judging anybody's politics, is there is still a challenge between Democratic progressives and Democratic moderates on how much funding should be done and how to pay for it and what should be funded. And it's even bifurcated a little more. Progressives generically have wanted $3.5 trillion in spending. Moderates weren't quite giving away what they'd spent, but we're finding out now that uh, President Biden went to the Hill and he said, look, we think it's going to be in the $1.9 to $2.3 trillion range. That's what he's looking for. Senator Manchin, who has been one of the moderate holdouts, has said $1.5 trillion. And of course, he's concerned about spending on environmental coming from a coal state. On the other hand, another moderate, Senator Sinema, also wants a bill in that range, but she's more concerned about the environment because she comes from Arizona. So I think what we have found out now, where are we? The bipartisan bill 
that had passed the Senate, that's true roads and infrastructure and bridges. The date to pass that has moved from September 27th, uh, certainly that didn't happen, which angered moderates, to likely November 1st or October 31st. And the thought here is, hey, we want to pass this bill, but progressives have said we're not moving it. And, and the, if the Republicans aren't going to help, there's simply not the votes there. So the month of October is where we're going to see the rubber hit the road on what is that negotiation going to be for the big tax bill that Democrats will have to move on their own. So this is precisely the time that we all have to pay attention. Now, to your question, just like any advocate, I take a year before I get to the answer. Um, here are the things that are in and out at the moment. And let's understand that the only thing we have seen is a bill that has not even passed the House yet. It has passed five different committees. All of those pieces have been put together in a, in a bill that is now in the House Budget Committee. But let's remember that they don't have, they being the Democrats in charge, don't have the votes to pass what's on the table. So the negotiations between the Senate and House are coming down now because moderates don't want to vote for a bill that has so many things in it at the House that may get them in trouble. They want to pass a bill that the Senate's going to pass to give them coverage. So again, what's in? As far as what I like to call the carrots or the investments, there, there are modifications to the low-income housing tax credit. And the whole idea here is to match Biden's goal of increasing the supply of affordable housing and affordable rental housing. When it comes to our industry, the two things that we are happy to see not in the bills right now are restrictions, any further restrictions on like-kind exchanges. And there is nothing on stepped-up basis at the moment. What is in there? There is a taxation on capital income. There is an elimination of carried interest. And I would say another thing that we're a little worried about, of course, is 199A pass-through rates, especially if you are a non-bank, non-bank mortgage broker. The effective rate essentially is around 25% now, but if you take all the changes they are adding up from a high-income earner going to a 39% tax rate to adding on the NIT tax, you actually get to an effective rate of about 50%. Now, there are plenty of senators who have not voted on this bill since it's in the House that are saying, I can't live with that. And so now let's think of the levers. That's all information that is in a $3.5 trillion proposal. I just mentioned there's no way in God's green earth that $3.5 trillion is going to get through. So a few things are going to have to happen. Of course, we all know how to do addition and subtraction. You either have to add more taxes in order to bring down that bill, or you have to take away investments. And here are the things that are outside of our industry that will end up affecting our industry. Right now, there's about six or $700 billion in there for prescription drugs to bring the prices down. And that feels like it's going to come out. Um, what does that mean? You have to find revenue somewhere. So we are staying diligent on the issues that we see at hand. Two, there are plenty of New York and California congressmen and women who want the SALT tax back. Why is that important to us? It's really expensive. And in order to do that, you have to find taxes. Um, so I think it's very, very important over the next month that we pay attention. Sure, like-kind exchanges aren't in. And quite frankly, they bring in maybe 10, 20 billion in revenue, which is a lot to any of us, but not a lot when you're doing budget math. Um, so we have to be careful because at the end of the day, it's not always about good policy. It's about how do you make the numbers work? So what would I anticipate? I would anticipate maybe the pass-throughs coming down a little bit. So they're at least on equal footing with C-Corps. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, I could see capital gains going up a little bit. I could see the corporate rate coming down. 
a little bit in order to help Senator Manchin out with his thoughts. And of course, we could see some of the some of the home ownership and uh, rental assistance uh, carrots come out, or at least be shrunken down. And the key point here is when you do a tax bill, the cost is over a 10-year period. So that's how you get to the 3.5 trillion. Another way to do this is to say, well, why don't we make the programs only last five years? Why don't we bring a SALT deduction back for five years? That's an easy way to, in budget math, to reduce the cost of a bill. Um, so seemingly on good footing, very scared about the pass-through deduction that needs to be worked on. I'm very happy about like-kind exchanges, but this month is likely going to be the month to determine A, can the Democrats find equal footing to pass a bill? And B, if it's going to go through, it's certainly going to, you know, on the timeline that's been set and the hurt feelings between progressives and moderates, they're going to really need to stick to that November 1st deadline. Mike, can you just go, I mean, maybe we're getting into real nerd land here, but <laughs> can you just explain that 199A concept? Sure. And actually, you know what? And we, we may cut it out if we think that, uh, you know, all of our listeners will fall asleep. But to me, at least to me, it's interesting. So let's say you are a, uh, a non-bank S-corp. Instead of paying um, a C-corp rate of 26 or 28%, I forget what the rate is now, you are able to pay a 20% rate. And so that's what you're paying on the, on the money that is flowing through. Well, if from the perspective of the Hill, they're saying, well, that's not really fair, especially if these are individuals and individual partnerships, shouldn't they be paying a higher rate simply because they're in the 1% club? These are people who are doing well. And so what the proposal does is it says, first, let's, let's limit that deduction at 20% to your first four or $500,000. It wasn't limited before. Secondly, let's increase the individual tax rate to 39.6% back where it was before the Trump tax bill. So if you hit the deduction at 500,000 and you're an individual partner in this firm, now you're going to pay 39%. Then they add on, hey, shouldn't everybody have to pay a net investment income tax and self-employment contributions under SECA? There's another 8% there. Uh, and sooner or later, and I think then you also have to add on a Medicare and Medicaid tax. So all of a sudden you go 39%, then you add on another 8%, then you add on another 4%, and that's how you get to an effective rate of about 50%. And so while certainly we all know that, that everybody is going to pay a little bit more taxes, when you add up all the taxes that are in the bill, it certainly moves the needle. And if you are an S-corp or a partnership and you're at 50% and you see a C-corp, a corporation in itself at 25 to 28%, how is that going to help with liquidity in commercial real estate? Or how is that going to help, especially in the multifamily area, if that's the way the non-banks are set up? So hopefully that gives a little bit of an explanation. Let's turn to the multifamily sector. Estimates are that back in August, more than 6 million households owe some $16.8 in rent. And we've talked about on this podcast many times that there is a patchwork of state eviction moratoria. Many of them are lapsing, and yet there's still gridlock over the rental assistance program, and renters and landlords can't seem to get their hands on the money. So what's going on? That's a great question. I think, stepping back for a moment, I think it's really important that everyone understand this is the first time there's ever been a federal rental assistance program. Sure, there's Section 8, but when we talk about you know, trying to help our fellow man over, over, over a period of time. This is the first time we've really done this. And instead of having uh, one federal program that says goes to the 
uh, IRS and says, okay, let's get a TIN number and dole out money. We decided to give it to state and local communities in order for them to meet best meet the needs of their renters. So I think there's two things going on. First, let's not forget some of the numbers. If you look at NMHC, National Multi-Housing Council site, they do monthly renter, rental uh, numbers, and roughly 95% of renters have been able to make full or partial payments during the pandemic. Uh, let's not forget, we've had direct checks and unemployment insurance all the way until uh, September of this year. And credit card uh, savings are up and credit card numbers are down. So yes, do people owe rent and should they get that money through the program? Absolutely. But you hit on one of the, one of the big points, Martha. I think it's a very difficult process for a, for a building owner to apply on behalf of their tenant. Because first, you need to get their permission. And secondly, you need to get a sign off that says, I have been affected by COVID. And of course, if you are a renter, you might be nervous to talk to your borrower. So it's a very difficult process. And then, of course, you have to find out who to get the money from and how to get it. Then if you think about this, we've been on this road for a better part of 16 months. Many of the borrowers or owners have worked out payment plans with many of their renters. And the Pareto chart of life, let's say it's 80 or 90%. So that leaves you 10%. Uh, and some of those folks are scared, naturally so. And I hate to say it, but I'm sure there's some bad actors as well that take advantage of the moratoria. So what are we going to do? Maxine Waters, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, so I said, well, let's figure out how to streamline this process. And her intent and her heart are in the right place. Uh, and so she has a bill that's been working its way through the House. I think the issue, the fundamental issue with her bill is she says, we will allow borrowers on a streamlined process, or I should say owners on a streamlined process to apply on behalf of their renters and make it easier. And let's quite frankly say, let's be a little less worried about fraud, waste and abuse, but let's get the money moving. However, she is saying, once you, the owner apply for this assistance without a guarantee that you'll get 100% of the rent in arrears, you have to add another 120 days onto the eviction moratorium. So. While that has great intent, if you are a borrower who hasn't had rental assistance or struggled to get it over 18 months, and now, even though this is a nice thought on enhancement, aren't guaranteed you'll get 100% of the money in arrears and have to add another 120 days on, likely for difficult or uncommunicative tenants who are scared, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, and our example to say, why doesn't this work? Think about the state of California. Last year, the state of California had passed a law that said, hey, borrowers, if you forgive 20% of the rent for your tenants, we will give you 80% of your rent back. And the borrower said, no, that won't work. Why would I do that? To the point that the legislature repassed a bill and took that off the table. So while the chair's heart is in the right place, we'd point to California as an example of why this may not work. Um, so the streamlining good, added eviction moratorium bad, and not bad for the tenant, but bad for the industry. And being 18 months in, I'm not sure that's necessarily going to solve the problem. So as a company that lives in the loan space, we too say borrower a lot when we need <laughs> to say owner. So I totally get it being in, in uh, a lender's organization like you are. But anyway, are there any ideas being floated out there that are better 
than this or that have that have better chances of actually working or of owners slash borrowers actually taking advantage of the programs or tenants? Yeah, no, uh, Joe, great question. Actually, two states that really do it well. I'm proud of my home state of Virginia. I think they've gotten 60, 70 percent of the rental assistance out and they had centralized it. You, know, you can go one stop shop to um, to one department, uh, apply for it. And if that means they have to send you to a county to get the money, they will. Um, so a centralized platform makes it a lot easier and then distributing it from that level. Uh, and also the state of Texas has done a really good job. And the idea is the same. First, you, you really have to market in hardest hit communities uh, and make sure that renters know that there are protections uh, around. So quite frankly, spending some of the money on advertising dollars is actually very critical. Uh, and then two, you got to get community organizations like churches involved. Uh, because you may not trust the government, but you are going to trust your church. You're going to trust your community leader. So getting active voices in the community to sell the program seems to work very well. Let's talk about GSEs. It's been a decade since Fannie and Freddie were placed under government control. And recently, the FHFA proposed to revise the conservatorship capital framework in order to encourage the transfer of risk to private investors. What's the impact of that? Sure, great question. And I would even step back one other step, uh, which is under Dr. Calabria, who ran the FHFA under President Trump, he had taken the multifamily caps and put them in the PSPA agreements. And that also added on exactly what you're talking about. What has happened under acting director Sandra Thompson and the new Treasury Department administration is they removed the caps and they removed and they decided to redo um, the capital rule. Does it have an immediate effect? No, it doesn't. But it does say that as in the proposed rule for capital, it does say that we are going to change the capital structure for credit risk transfers. And it should be a lower capital charge on the GSEs, therefore allowing better, better churn, therefore allowing more investors to buy in. Um, if you believe in credit risk transfers, that should be a good thing for the GSEs and a good thing for investors. I think the second part of this is that there's an affordability factor that we're taking a look at too. Remember the mission of the Biden administration, now the mission of Sandra Thompson, and of course the mission of FHFA is to push for more affordable housing. So on top of this, on top of the capital rule, I think there are two other areas that, that, that the market as a whole will want to pay attention to. Remember, we're in cap setting time, meaning the GSEs, the FHFA will determine how much business each GSE can do next year in the multifamily space. Not only how much multifamily, but what percentage of that must be focused on affordable housing generic definition of affordable housing being 80% AMI or below. The third part is they've also proposed uh, a rule on the housing goals themselves, and they've set pretty aggressive unit numbers over the next three years. So there's three things that the industry should be paying attention to, be you a private lender or a GSE lender, or both, quite frankly. What are those caps going to look like? How big will it be? Remember, this year it's 70 billion with 50% concentrated on, on affordable housing. My assumption in looking at some of the projections for multifamily housing is those caps will get larger. I don't know that. I have no inside information, but I would think that uh, usually the GSEs get about a 40 to 50% market share. And if projections are to increase, you would assume the caps would increase. 
I wouldn't expect the percent that go to affordable housing to shrink because that is the mission of the Biden administration. So that 50% seems solid. Um, but what I could see coming back is in order to meet that 50%, adding back high cost areas into the affordable housing mission. Remember pre last year, to meet the affordable housing goal, if you were in New York or California, you could go to 125% of AMI. Um, when Dr. Clabry came in, he made it 80% AMI across the board. So if you're a GSE lender, that's a positive if it happens. If you are a life insurance or CMBS lender, you may not like that as much because that could change your allocations. How much? We'll see. And it also depends on if I'm right or not. Uh, but if I was trying to produce more affordable housing and I'm the Biden administration, and I can do that in high cost areas where maybe the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader of the Senate live, I might consider that strongly. So I just, I can't resist because if I know something about something, I might as well Please. say it. But we've had, we've had a lot of interaction in the multifamily CRT, credit risk transfer space. And it had, it had been kind of going and also growing and ramping up pre-COVID. And it does seem like they, I, I know Freddie recently announced, or I think it, it might've been Fannie actually announced that they were going to restart and start pumping out uh, CRT deals in Q4 of 21, which is good. I mean, you know, for me, the, the concept makes a lot of sense, which is take some risk off of the GSE's plate and put it on to investors who are willing to take that risk. But it's, it's a much, much bigger market in the single family space for sure. But I, I hope that it grows in the multifamily space somewhat selfishly, because I think it's kind of fun to work on. <laughs> Martha's shaking her head at me. But I do think like in the end, you know, I don't know if GSEs ever go like fully private again or out of conservatorship. I, I probably doubt it. But I do think that having less risk on the kind of quote unquote government balance sheet is probably not a bad thing. Well, you, you kind of hit on two things. One, um, kind of buried in your question is, you know, will these guys ever get out of conservatorship? Remember that Biden doesn't have getting them out of their conservatorship on his prioritization no. list. And then right. to your point, Joe, let's think practically. Having the inflows from the GSEs to help balance your budget when you're looking to spend dollars on investment doesn't hurt. Right. Uh, and then waylaying some of that risk off of the balance sheet doesn't hurt as well. So I think there's a practicality, you know, not that that's the way the Biden administration thinks, but, you know, I think every administration has seen the benefits of the revenues from the GSEs on, on the budget. Well, any, if there are any nerd quants out there still listening, you could shoot us an email at podcast at trep.com and you could talk to us about modeling <laughs> default yes. and loss risk on a pool of loans that has had almost zero defaults or losses over the last uh, 15 years. So that's always a fun exercise, but that's more for the uh, actuaries who are listening. Everybody else is asleep. <laughs> so do you want to talk a little bit about HUD and uh, what's going on with FFB? Sure. Um, so two things. The main purpose of HUD when you think about multifamily is to produce more affordable housing. And with interest rates where they are and refis uh, happening as well as new construction, the pipeline, first off, HUD has had its two best years in a row uh, over the last two years in its production. So what does that mean? It has five regions that underwrite loans. Well, their current map program, if you're trying to do a loan in the Northeast, 
it is a seven month waiting period to get an underwriter. So imagine if you were, if this was on a home loan and you called your realtor and said, great, I want to buy that house. And they're like, sure you do. Um, we'll call you in seven months to talk about it. You can imagine how that could be a problem. Um, so the Biden administration is bringing back and has, and HUD has announced it is bringing back a program uh, whereby the Federal Finance Bank, a little known agency out of Treasury, would loan money cheaply to state HFAs and PHAs. And the goal is to create 20,000 more units of affordable housing over the next five years. On its face, it's, it should be a good program. Who is against producing more affordable housing? Our concern is not the program itself, but uh, that it will actually compete with one of HUD's other programs, which is the MAP program that I just described. And our numbers show that in that pipeline alone, there are 18,000 units roughly of new construction sitting in the pipeline. So our thought is, hey, FFB is great, but let's make sure of two things. One, why don't we get the contractors you need because you have the appropriations to do it in order to clean, clean out your pipeline? And I mean that in a good way. Get the loans underwritten and let's produce 18,000 units, which you can do in a year or two instead of over five years. And then two, let's make sure that we don't cannibalize the good private public-private partnership you have with this MAP pipeline by now rerouting risk share loans through the state HFAs. Should they be allowed to help with, with affordable housing? Absolutely, but let's make sure they're doing the loans that don't compete with the MAP program. And what I mean by that is what are the hardest loans to do? Five million and under. They're really, really difficult. Who has the ability to do that? PHAs and HFAs. Uh, so let's make sure of two things. Let's not forget that the state housing finance agencies also uh, own the LIHTC tax credits. So let's not make sure that the, the debt and equity aren't tied together. That would certainly be a conflict of interest. Here, I'll nerd out even further, Joe. Uh, so it's not just the actuaries. Now we'll get the wage earners involved. Uh, there's a little known rule called Davis-Bacon. And that Davis-Bacon, I wish it was Isn't about- Isn't that the lady who teaches you how to type? Oh my God, it should be, or somebody who's making me- oh, No, that's Mavis Beacon. Ask. Sorry, I got confused. <laughs> but, uh, but Davis Bacon says that if you are doing work with the government, you've got to use union rights. And when FFB was originally created during the great financial crisis, since there was no liquidity, uh, great idea, but some of the loans were structured around that program. And that doesn't quite seem like the right thing to do. Um, so all we want to see is don't compete, don't, don't have HUD programs compete with one another. Let's make sure we're funding all the different types of loans we can. And let's make sure we, we remove conflicts of interest like debt and equity tying, uh, soft money tying, and of course, making sure that everybody has to use the same wage rates. Got it. Makes sense. So Mike, moving on to uh, the banking side of the world, we talked last week uh, on our podcast about uh, some of the bank data that we have and kind of what we're seeing in delinquency rates and things like that. But from a regulatory legislative perspective, what are some of the things that the bankers in your organization are watching out for? Sure. I'll give you the two largest. One, um, if we recall under the Trump administration, uh, the three banking agencies struggled to reach agreement on what an enhanced community reinvestment act should look like. So the OCC released a proposal on its own. And certainly if you're a bank, 
you look at that and say, gee whiz, how do I how do I comply to Community Reinvestment Act if the OCC comes in with one set of rules and the Fed comes in with another set and the FDIC comes in with a third set? Now the Fed and the FDIC are together, but but you kind of get the point. So the good part is that uh, in the summer this year, the OCC withdrew that that rule from the Trump administration, and now the Community Reinvestment Act uh, will be aligned. But the next step will be, okay, what does the future look like? How will we be told we need to lend in our communities or how will we agree on that? So banks should be following that very, very closely as, as that rule goes through. And the second part I would say is I think there is a, a bit of concern on who, who the potential or who the nominee for the OCC could be. You know, I, I will fail to say the name correctly, but I think the worry is that, that, that the nominee has spoken about the Federal Reserve being able to do deposits. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how someone who doesn't seem so friendly to banks or doesn't appear to be that friendly to banks, um, A, if they can get through the Senate. Uh, and B, what would their regulatory agenda look like? You know, and I think the third portion to look at if you are a bank is keep a careful eye on the CFPB. Whether you're in the residential or commercial space, the CFPB has been keeping, keeping a very close eye on servicers, especially in the residential space, uh, and making sure that um, whatever you have said you agree to do under the forbearance rules is completed. Um, so if I, if I was a bank, uh, I'd be worried about those those two areas. And then in another direction, while it's not quite bank rules, uh, sticking with the Community Investment Act for a minute, um, there's certainly been a lot of talk at the Financial Stability Oversight Council under both administrations, the previous one and the current one, about how you regulate non-banks. And as you'll start to see in the states, not necessarily at the federal level, but what you see at the states is you're starting to see states come out with Community Reinvestment Act um, regulations or proposed regulations for non-banks. And you've seen Chair Powell, and we'll see if he's renominated. Chair Powell say, well, shouldn't they have the same Community Reinvestment Act regulations? So I think there's a little bit of feeling from the bank regulators from the, from the previous uh, financial crisis when everyone was told never again, well, here's this whole non-bank space. Should we be regulating it? If you're a bank, you certainly care about that. That helps you with competition if they're regulated. If you're non-bank, you kind of don't like that very much because you have 50 states that you are regulated by. Um, so I think we're paying attention to community reinvestment acts. And again, Biden's whole, one of his whole pillars is, is to um, increase the supply of affordable rental and, uh, and housing. Well, it's funny because a lot of those non-banks sprung up because the banks could no longer do what they used to do because of new capital requirements and regulations. So it'd be interesting. Will there be like a non-non-bank that sprouts up after the, the non-banks get regulated, right? Well, as we all do, we find out what the regulations look like and we find out what our taxes look like and we find out what, what's allowed afterwards. So I'm sure there'll be somebody who's smart and figures out, <laughs> figures out how, to, how to lend appropriately uh, around the rules. Lend it to me in like uh, cryptocurrency and stablecoin and all this other nonsense. Oh. Maybe, maybe that'll get by. Well, for six months until that's regulated as well. Exactly. So turning to the insurance segment, this past year, we've seen a number of environmental events that took headlines, Hurricane Ida, wildfires in the West, and a crazy snowstorm in Texas. This year, President Biden asked the Treasury Secretary to have the Federal Insurance Office, I quote, assess what climate-related issues or gaps in, could affect supervision and regulation of insurers. What does that mean? 
<laughs> That's a great question. And, and um, you can tell how wide open that is. So let's- Means we're coming. <laughs> Basically. That, Joe, that is, is an appropriate answer. Going back to the banks for a second, that's something everybody should be thinking about as well, uh, which is A, what does ESG lending mean and what standards do we care about? And B, what does my risk management mean and, and what do we care about? But Martha, you hit on it. There's an office called the FIO. Let's remember they actually have zero regulatory authority um, because every state uh, has an insurance regulator and that's how the insurance companies are regulated. But what they can do is study. And every time there's a study, you don't just do it to put it out there with the government. You do it to uh, figure out what you want to do. So to your point, Martha, it's, it's, a, it's a broad question. You know, what gaps are there? That can be in our industry, we see it as what gaps are there in lending? What, you know, what metrics are necessary in order to measure what is green? And when we think about green bonds, how do we know that they were effective? And how does an investor know uh, that the metrics are being met? And then to your point, quite frankly, on the other side, be you a life insurance company or a bank, Certainly, I think we can agree that uh, no matter your beliefs on climate change, we've certainly seen increased uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and, and payouts. So you have, a, you have a national flood insurance program that's highly in debt, and you have increasing uh, insurance costs that every lender is taking on when they lend. So the question becomes, how do you regulate that? How do you risk manage that? And what regulations will be put in place? And that could be anything from you can't lend to X anymore, which I think is a tough sell to um, we are going to increase your risk management. And as we know, increased risk management means increased costs. So I would assume, long answer to a short question, um, once we get through taxes and transportation and infrastructure, if they stick to their timeline this time of November, you'll start to see the regulators take on risk management and enhancing those rules of risk management for insurance companies and banks. A little tougher with insurance companies, you try to set it at the NAIC level and then drip it down to the states. But that's what I would expect to see is the study, a report on the study. And then once the report comes out, the regulators have already been working on whatever the proposed rules will be. Yeah, I think that there's an issue where this there's ESG, right? And then there's climate risk mitigation, right? So on the insurance company side, there's the, or the, in the insurance space, I should say, there's the idea of what must insurance companies cover versus not cover and what must you, what type of insurance must you get if you're getting a mortgage and all that type of stuff. So that's kind of one category there. And then there's the ESG category, which is kind of separate in my opinion of like, well, where are you actually lending or where are you investing? And are you investing or lending in properties or borrowers or whatever the case may be that are more positive for the environment or more positive for society or that have good governance. So like you mentioned it before, there's no common framework of, of capturing that stuff, but I guess like, what are you seeing there in the ESG space from your lenders now? Sure. Um, you know, what we see is certainly if you're the GSEs, they have their green bonds that are kind of water and utility, right? And um, you're starting to see social bonds and you're starting to see, starting to get the idea of what what is governance or what would a G, you know, the E, S, and G in this, what's the governance part of this look like? 
Um, but uh, so I, I think, you know, whether we like it or not, sometimes we, we take our cues off of what Fannie and Freddie are doing since they're such a large portion of the market. And in essence, since they're in conservatorship, you get a bit of a little bit of a tacit approval of those bonds. Um, so I'd be watching the social bonds there. But then think about this from what you're going to have to watch for if you are a lender at all, which is I have the SEC with disclosures. I have my primary regulator who's going to help me with risk management and the governance side, as you say, Joe. And then I have my state regulators who are going to have their own set of rules. Think about the city and now go local. Think about the city of New York that says thou shalt have what is it, 80% uh, energy efficiency by 2050 for buildings that are 50,000 square feet or above. You know, uh, I, this is not to pick on Bank of America, but I believe they're at zero emissions in their building. Well, how, how do you get more efficiency if you're at zero emissions in your building? What is that local reg going to look like when the feds come out with their ideas? How is that going to interplay? And that, I think, is going to be very interesting. Add on top of that, if you are an international institution, um, Europe is a little more advanced on what they're thinking about when it comes to green. So much like we had with securitization frameworks, you know, how will uh, how will lending in Europe look compared to lending in the U.S.? And if you are a big global institution, will you simply go towards some more conservative rules so you're not trying to, to do both? And I think those are all the interesting questions. And, and I would say, if you're looking for insights, look to the G20. That's basically the, 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 the legion of doom of regulators, of international regulators, right? I probably shouldn't say legion of doom, but that's where you get 20 regulators together and they kind of say, here are the, here are the, here are the top principles we are going to use. And then that disseminates down to each of the nations. And I think if you're looking for forward thoughts, I would pay attention to both the ECB and the G20 when it comes to, when it comes to what they're thinking. I might just open up a business, a construction company that builds 49,999 square foot buildings in New York <laughs> City. <laughs> uh, the, the great part is when you go to do an addition or a rehab, the automatic answer is no. Yeah, that's right. Mike, thanks so much for breaking down our regulatory issues in a way that we could understand them. Hopefully our listeners understand it, but if not, feel free to give us a shout out and we'll send you more information. With that, we'll close this special podcast. Thanks to Mike, our guest from MBA. Thank you to Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, send us an email at podcast at trep.com. Please visit trep.com for more info and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. <laughs>